All right, BradCooney.com in association with HCN Networks it is once again honored to have in Mr. Michael Denning, who's a professor at Physics and Astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. And you have another title that we just talked about that I already forgot what it is. Um, yeah, it, it actually is a really cool title because it abbreviates the Vimple Do. There you um, go. It's the, it's the Vice Provost for Teaching and Learning and Dean of the Division of Undergraduate Education. <laughs> that's that's another. I mean, after a while, you're, you're going to have so many titles. It's going to take me five minutes to get through it just to start the interview. Exactly. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a little insane, but it, it, it's fun work, so that's good. And let's add author, um, author yeah. of your new book called Divine Science: Finding Reason at the Heart of Faith. Now, we touched briefly on this, um, Michael, in our last podcast. Of course, the book was not out yet. And uh, you right. couldn't really get into a whole lot of it. But we talked about, while we did the interview, when we talked about Ancient Alien Show, we talked about how um, God and science, and I asked you in particular if you think that those two could coexist. And that's when you said, well, it's ironic you asked that because I have a book coming out that kind of touches on that. So now's an opportunity. This book is going to be released shortly. Um, I guess it's, 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 can we get pre-orders yet? You can already pre-order both either the paperback or the Kindle version on Amazon. They're both out. Um, and in fact, friends I know who um, pre-ordered it will get it delivered in like two weeks, even though the official release date, I think, is October 2nd. Oh, nice, nice. Well, I will certainly do that as well and do a nice book review for you, of course. Um, but let's talk about this. So so first and foremost, what, what exactly inspired you to write this book? You know, two things really went into it. One is, I, I, I've been a practicing Catholic my whole life. I was born and raised Catholic, um, but my mom actually is also Jewish, so I've already, I've always been exposed to a lot of different ways of thinking about religion and faith. And then, obviously, I'm a physicist. I've been a practicing scientist my whole life, and for me, it's never been an issue, and I've always been confused by the public debate that seems to present it as an either-or. And what I realized in the last couple of years is the voices you hear in the public are either what I would call kind of the, you know, extreme scientists who say, you know, there's no way religion and science can coexist and you must pick science, or the extreme religious mm-hmm. say there's no way they can coexist so you must pick religion. So the only real voices getting a lot of time were the there's no way they can coexist. Now the two groups didn't agree on what to do after that, but that message they agreed on. And I thought, well, this is just not, you know, the full picture. And there was this big middle that there are people who have written on how science and religion can coexist. But I noticed a lot of them were focused, and this is the other reason I got motivated to do it, a lot of them are focused on trying to prove that God could exist. Mm. And I decided that wasn't really the type of book I wanted to write. What I wanted to write was for people who already believe in God or feel like they know God exists, I wanted to be kind of the science outreach person to them. So you're already in this place where you know God exists, but what do you do with all this science stuff? Let me tell you how it helps your religion and how it helps your faith and isn't a hindrance to it. Very interesting. Now, when you were researching and putting this book together, um, anything anything in your research, any, any, any aha moments or wow moments while you were while you were researching to write this book? There were, there were two big ones. One is, so like, the thing that's most debated in the public is all these issues of creation and evolution. 
Um, and for me, that's always been like the easiest one. I will admit, and I say it right up front of my book, if you, there's, there's two assumptions you might have about life, and you probably shouldn't read my book. Um, <laughs> if you absolutely insist that everything in the Bible is literal, scientific fact and truth, then you're going to believe a particular version of creation that you're going to have a hard time matching with science. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's fine. That's your prerogative. And, and that's where you're going to be. If you're the other extreme scientist who believes the only thing that exists is physical reality, you're probably not going to like my book either. But if you're struggling with this idea of creation and the universe and God and science, my one big aha was a lot of the trouble comes around our image of what it means to have a creator and who the creator is and the relationship between God and creation. And it's because we always picture someone creating something separate from themselves. So a sculpture makes a sculpture that's different than them. A writer writes a book that's different than them. Um, Steve Jobs invents computers that are different than them. And for me, the right image for creation when you talk about God and science is actually the child growing in the mother's womb. And you have this idea of, of creation of something that's part of the mother, but also separate from the mother. And so you have an idea of creation it being part of God and separate of God. And that was a big aha moment for me, because when you change your language, then a lot of stuff follows from that. Yeah, great analogy with the mother and the child in the womb. Yeah. Um, and then the other, just real quick, the other big one yeah. I want to talk about a little bit more was, I realized miracles are much more fun to think about than I thought. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, speak, you just brought up miracles recently. Um, within the last six months to a year, I'm not sure if you if you saw this, but there was some paramedics. There were six or seven of them that showed up at a crash site, a car, um, and all of them heard a voice speak out saying um, "over here" or something like that. All of them heard the same thing at the same time, and it was a female voice. And they walked over and found the car upside down, and the the mom was passed away. And there was just a, a young child, like a year or less, alive in the child seat in the back. But it was a mature voice that said it. And right. they're on CNN. They were on, they're on uh, Anderson Cooper's show not too long ago. And every one of these medics and EMS said that they all heard the voice. So do you believe um, that or that angels are real? Uh, is that is that something that, that you think is possible? So...
that interaction gets translated through our just way of dealing with reality into these physical terms. So when I hear of a situation like these um, EMTs, I wasn't there. It's not. I can't judge whether they really heard a voice or didn't hear a voice, but they clearly had an experience that communicated a clear direction to them that led them to finding the child. Right. Right. And to me, that's. I, I think that was my other aha moment. Is we need to sort of change what we focus on when we think about miracles. Right. We like to focus on the exciting. You know, oh, it looked like something magic happened, or it looked like, mm-hmm. um, you know, something we can't completely understand. Whereas the real thing to me is somebody had a deep experience of some reality that goes beyond the physical, that points to God and God caring for the world. That's even more amazing. And let's focus on the meaning of the experience as opposed to the details of the experience. Interesting. You always make me think when I interview you, Michael Dunn. The few people who read my book have pointed out that it does make them think, which was the goal of it was, so that's good. Well, that actually is a good segue in, because I was going to ask you, what, what, what is it that you most want the readers to get out of your book when they read it? What I'm really hoping to give them is, is, is a language and a perspective to kind of move forward so they understand, particularly for people who already have a deep and solid faith, what I really said at the beginning, that a, a deep understanding of our best understanding of the physical world helps give you a better understanding of your whole broader experience of God, or I like to call it the fullness of reality in the book, um, and what that means. And so it really is to make people feel comfortable with science that is often, I think, sometimes misused. You know, quantum mechanics is hard and it's weird. Relativity is hard and it's weird. So you, if you don't really understand it, you can use it to confuse people. <laughs> okay. And, and sure. I mean, I, I, I'm upfront in the book that I can't make quantum mechanics and relativity any easier per se. I can try and be clearer about it than maybe some other attempts are. But it's hard stuff. But then also thinking about God and faith is hard stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but these, these hard things are worth thinking about. And it's worth asking interesting questions. So if people can kind of ask themselves some interesting questions that get them closer to God, then I think the book's a success. And a minute ago I asked you if, if, uh, if you thought angels were real. Um, and I'm, I'm going to ask this question because I'm just curious to what your personal belief is. And if you don't want to share this, I thought that's fine. Right. Um, but when we die, when the human dies, whether it's old age, car accident, whatever, do you believe that we maintain a conscious awareness after death? So I do. Um, what I wonder is, since we'll never know until they actually die, what does that really mean or feel like or mm-hmm. be? Um, and for, for me, there's kind of two things, and I talk about this in the book. You know, if, if we are purely physical beings and there's nothing more else to us, then probably when we die, we're just done, right? Right. Um, And so I think one of the real interesting questions that's not discussed a lot is what is there, if any, evidence that there's part of us that is more than, you know, the soul that's more than just the physical part that we kind of experience that way. And for me, and I put a whole chapter on this, it comes down to this idea of free will. 
To me, I can't prove it to anyone, but everything in our society, everything we do, all the ways we interact with each other points to the fact that we actually do have some choices in our life. We don't have total freedom of choice because obviously, you know, not everybody has the same material means, not every, you know, a rock can fall out of the sky and hit you, <laughs> or right. it's more likely lightning. Um, you know, you're not in control of every aspect of your life, but human experience has suggested that we do have some choices. Um, and physics would suggest that everything is predetermined. So if you have choices, there must be something about you that goes beyond just the physical. And to me, that kind of points to this idea of a soul, which then points to the idea of something that goes beyond your physical existence when you die. I have no proof of that, but right, right. It's, it's kind of, to me, I guess the way I say it in the book, it's just as logical, given what we know, to assume that there is something that continues after you die as it is to assume that there's nothing. Yeah, you know, I've always thought about like when you when you're growing up as a, as a child and into your adolescent years and young adult, middle age, and then older, um, and then when you you know paying ten cents for the senior citizen coffee at McDonald's and, right. and onward, you know, your whole life there's always that voice when you talk to yourself inside your head. Exactly. And so my my thing is, well, who, who is that? What is that? What is that little, what's that all about? I mean, who, who is that? Or, you know, when I say who, it's not a person, of course, but what is that? And I think that might be part of your soul, no? No, I think it will. And, and I think, you know, there, there are a lot of just fascinating questions around consciousness, free will. And, and one of the examples I give in the book, um, it's, again, it's not a proof, but people often say, you know, well, when you die, all the physical processes stop. And that's what made you who you were in your consciousness and yourself, so you must stop. And the only, from a science point of view, the only problem I have with that argument is we know um, there's lots of situations where the before and after looks very different. And so the example I give in the book is, even though it sounds science fiction, we know that matter and antimatter exist. And very often, there's very common processes where you have an electron and a positron, which is the anti-electron, annihilate and produce two um, pieces of light afterwards. So beforehand, you have particles, an electron, and an anti-electron, and afterwards, you just have light. Um, and you would say, okay, it's completely different before and after. That's kind of like before you have the body and after you're dead and you have nothing. But there's a concept through that in the physics, and that's the total charge. And the system is effectively, from a physics point of view, the same system before and after. It just has a different manifestation. And the key element of it being its charge stays the same. So there's no reason from that kind of analogy that your soul or what makes you you exists both before and after you die. The form is just very different. Wow. Yeah, that's the best I've ever heard that explained, really. Very, very Thank you. So, buy the book and you get to read that again. <laughs> Absolutely. Everybody out there, you need to buy this book. It's called Divine Science, Finding Reason at the Heart of Faith by author Michael Denon, who you can also check out on Ancient Aliens. It's yep. on the History Channel. Um, Michael's not one of the guys that believes that Martians built the pyramids. He is rather a skeptic that brings the science part of it into it. Um, and, I, and I like that. And I'm, yeah, you know, I'm glad. You know, though, I'm glad they have that. I think there should be a check and balances. Yep. You know, so that's that's good stuff. And All I right. believe we will be filming another season of that late in the fall. 
Oh, that's great. So, so they're going to renew and do another yeah, season. They're going to renew and do another season. That's awesome, man. All right, so when this book comes out, they get it at uh, Amazon. Where else can they get it? You can already go to Amazon.com. It should be in Barnes & Noble. You know, you can actually Google it on the web and get it a number of places, but Amazon.com right now is the obvious big place. Yep. One more thing before I let you go. Yes. This is not book-related. This is outside the book. But I'm just curious to see your thoughts on this, because recently NASA announced that they believe they found the closest thing to another Earth um, as possible with the, uh, uh, I don't know if Kepler found this or not, but I think it was the Kepler telescope. Maybe yeah, not. that was probably the one. Yeah, yeah. Um, apparently it's just a little bit bigger. It's got a, basically, it's, a, it's almost the same year, 360, almost 375 days, maybe close to that, close to 365 days a year. Um, roughly same temperatures. So basically, what, I'm, what I want to ask you um, is, what, what do you think the odds there that life has kicked off? And even if it has, what are the odds that it, it evolved to where you know transmissions and radio signals even even are possible? You know, I, that, it's, it's a very interesting question. I think about two years ago, I would have probably given you a different answer than I give you now because I've been thinking about this probably because of being on ancient aliens. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I think we don't really fully appreciate or understand when we talk about life developing here on Earth, we, we you know, from the science side, you often hear the language of, you know, it's a random process and lots of things have to happen, and so it's a small chance for life. Um, this is actually not really an accurate picture scientifically, and the reason is... Um, the Earth is what we call a driven system. The sun heats it up. Mm -hmm. And the best analogy I have is if you heat up a thin layer, say, oil in a frying pan or water in the right conditions, water molecules moving randomly would never spontaneously organize into convection rolls, which are organized circulating rolls of water. But if you heat it from below and cool it from above, like you do when you just heat a frying pan of oil from below, at a critical temperature difference, you're guaranteed to get these convection rolls spontaneously. And if you look at it in your oil, a thin layer of oil will often look like hexagons from above. Mm -hmm. It'll make a really nice pattern. Um, those rolls, you have, if you know the temperature difference, what we call the driving force or the parameter, you have a 100% chance of getting those rolls every time. Even though if you were to ask, what's the probability of getting it from random motion of molecules, it's zero. Hmm. And I think what we forget is the Earth is a nonlinear system. And it's so complex, we don't quite understand it yet, but a priori, without even, like, looking at it, once you change your perspective from, is it the random motions, like the molecules in the liquid, or is it more, we're going to think about it as a driven system, it's very likely that the reason we have life on Earth is, given the size and location of the planet relative to the sun, that's what you would get, is life on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's almost 100% probability, which then says if you find another planet of roughly the same size and the same distance from its sun, it's the same thing. The chance is roughly 100%. So I'm actually, I now convinced myself that the probability that these places have life is very, very high. And it's even very, very high that given our experience that life under the conditions we have on Earth led to a fairly high level of intelligence and, and producing of technology and all that, it's very likely it happened on other similar planets. Now, I may be 
we may be missing something, right? It may not be just the distance. I mean, a lot of people talk about the moon being critical, right? Exactly what are the parameters that made life on Earth so possible? We don't completely know yet, but mm -hmm. certainly distance and size is a big one. So if that's similar, I think it's very likely. Hmm. And, you know, then you got to throw distance into the equation as far as trying to establish contact with... with any kind of life on another planet, what are the odds that the life on that planet evolved the same way we did? You know, and then had a trickier. Yeah, that, yeah. that I mean, huh. is, you know, because, like, again, using my analogy of making patterns in fluids, there's lots of different ways to make hexagons in there. Mm -hmm. Right? So they're all hexagons, but they're different. You know, you could argue there's lots of different ways to get life, even though it's all life. And that that's a, a whole separate question. But I think. As we move forward, you'll find more scientists because the idea of driven systems and nonlinear is a relatively new idea in, in both physics and chemistry and biology. And as people explore it more, I think you're gonna, we're going to get a better understanding of that and be better able to estimate what these chances are of life on, on, under these different conditions. Yeah, you know, if, if somebody would have sent us a signal and it got to Earth saying, hello, we, you know, we're out here, but it got to us in 1900, they'd be screwed. That we would never be able to respond to it. Right. I mean, that's just, if, you're, if you're off by just a few yeah. years, which is easy to do, yeah. that can be a problem. Absolutely. All right, man. We can talk about this all night. I just wanted to get you back on. I wanted to talk about your your book. Oh, no, no. Let's touch on one other thing on on, uh, on your on your show, Fascinating Fights. T -t touch right. uh, touch base with the with the fans on that real quick. So we we finished the full season. You can find them all on YouTube. There's about 14 episodes. I think people's favorite one was when we did the Sesame Street versus the Muppets. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but there's a lot of good a lot of good matchups. We've kind of planned out the matchups for the next season, and that should be filmed in the next couple of weeks. And so look for that in maybe a month or two. There it is. Okay, uh, people out there listening to this, go buy this book. Finding I'm sorry, Divine Science: uh, Finding Reasons at the Heart of Faith. Can be uh, pre-ordered on Amazon.com right now by Michael Denon. Michael, thanks so much for joining us, and let's get you back on soon. Thank you. We will do that. Take care, buddy. Okay, thanks.